News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this morning, we've heard that yet another sponsor is saying no thanks to Hockey Canada. And this time it is TELUS. That follows Scotiabank and Tim Horton saying they are not going to be investing money in Hockey Canada operations or sponsorship for the next year. So the next season. Because all of these organizations, and we've heard politicians say this too, say that Hockey Canada does not understand how it contributed to the situation that is currently gripping that organization. In fact, even the Prime Minister says it boggles the mind how Hockey Canada fails to understand how it's contributed to this serious situation. So now you've got Hockey Quebec uh, saying they don't want ties with Hockey Canada. You've got Hockey Ontario Also, the Ontario Hockey Federation confirming that it intends to withhold its funds from Hockey Canada. Hockey BC, meanwhile, says they need to think about it some more. Let's get an update now on what has been happening in the last 24 hours with this story. Ian Mendez joins us now, senior writer at The Athletic. Ian, every time we talk to you about the story, I think that, oh, we've reached the peak moment of the story, and then it just keeps going. I know. Isn't it something else, Simi, where where I think... um you know, I, I spoke to you in the summertime and, you know, I, I covered a couple of those hearings in, in June and July. And I think the, the, the one that I covered on Tuesday here in Ottawa, I think it really just was seemed to be the one that pushed everybody over the edge. And, and you just laid this out. Uh, some major league sponsors here, Scotiabank, TELUS, uh, Tim Hortons, um, you know, and then those two governing hockey bodies you mentioned, they all have pulled the plug within hours of that testimony on Tuesday. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think they were all kind of sitting on the sidelines, hoping that they would hear that, you know, maybe tangible change had arrived at the doorstep of hockey Canada. And instead, I think for a lot of us, I mean, certainly I was in the room and then people that either watched the coverage or followed along on social media felt like the, the tone that came out was again, a lot of rhetoric, a lot of, uh, I guess deflecting and and not quite uh, understanding the the, the, yeah. the scope of the situation. Oh no, kidding! Like to suggest that hockey, like playing hockey in Canada, is in peril if they don't continue at that organization to lead the organization. I thought, well, that's a bit much. Saying that who's going to turn on the lights at the ice rink? Well, that was a bit oh. much for me. Um, and and also this idea that like who are the board of directors of Hockey Canada anyway? Like I looked up the list and I thought, you know what? I would guess that some new leadership would be great in here because who are the people who make this up? Well, exactly. It's a nine-person uh, you know board of governors, and uh, they're actually all up for re-election next month. So I suspect there will be some change. But again, that's uh, at one level, that's the kind of the, the board that oversees everything. There needs to be some, I think, some accountability and change at the executive level at Hockey Canada. And you're right, of all of the comments that were made uh, by Andrea Skinner, who's now the interim chair of, of Hockey Canada's board, I thought the comment she made of, you know, well, who's, you know, who's going to, well, you know, will the lights be turned on? You know, the idea that these power brokers who, who uh, you know, accept $3,000 championship rings and then potentially have these lavish meals and are free willing and spending. The idea that those suits have any, cor- there's any correlation between the lights being turned on at a rink in Burnaby at 6 a.m. Uh, is laughable. It really is. And so uh, I think, again, it underscores the disconnect that uh, seems to be there between Hockey Canada, the, you know, the way they view themselves 
and the way the rest of us in the country view them. That is, that is to me the point right there, Ian, right? You hit the nail on the head, is that they seem to have a different opinion of themselves that the rest of the country has of them. The fact that they made themselves replica championship rings, to me, yeah. was astounding. I don't know about you. Yeah, $3,000 per ring uh, each time a, a major national team secured a championship. And again, uh, I think if this was a completely private entity, you wouldn't care if it was, you know, we were talking about TELUS and, uh, you know, uh, some of these other companies, uh, Tim Hortons, if, if their executives are doing things with, well, with their yeah. own money, that's one thing. But Hockey Canada, you know, technically is a, a governing body of hockey in this country. And I think the issue is there's a disconnect. They behave like they're a big corporation when really they're supposed to be a grassroots entity. And that's, there, there's a, there's a, uh, you know, something needs to be rectified there to, to, to move forward. But that's a good point though. If they want to behave like a company, then they need to consider the people who pay those dues as their shareholders, right? Those are yeah, their clients exactly. and their shareholders and all the parents out there paying those hockey dues, everybody out there, you are a shareholder. And if your shareholders are upset, then you need to listen to that. But it doesn't, does it seem like they're listening? No, and I think that was the, the, the point that came across on Tuesday is that, you know, Andrea Skinner, she blamed the media, said, you know, we have kind of fundamentally mischaracterized the story. You know, you know, what, you know what I thought the, the, the most telling thing was, as I sat there in the, in the West Block of Parliament Hill and, and politicians came out and, you know, I spoke to, well, I know Peter Julian is, uh, you know, from your uh, neck of the woods there in New West and, you know, he's with the NDP and, uh, you know, there, it was, it didn't matter what, political party they belong to ndp conservative liberal they came out and they were just eviscerating hockey canada in my mind i'm thinking my goodness is this what it takes to bring our yes, political hockey. parties together in a in a year in which we've seen more divisiveness than ever um, they're all singing from the same hymn book here and, and, and it's rather refreshing to see uh, politicians when they all work in in tandem uh, you know, hopefully you're going to see some results. But I, that, that to me was the most striking thing uh, you know, out of everything on Tuesday. Ian, that is such a good point because maybe somebody should point that out then to the Hockey Canada Board of Directors and say, did you realize that you actually made yeah. politicians <laughs> of all these different parties agree on something and it is the fact that you guys should all resign and there needs to be new leadership at Hockey Canada? Um, so do you feel your feeling, though, is that things will change in the next month or two? Well, certainly at the board level, uh, which is, uh, again, these are volunteers, right? So the, the, the volunteer uh, nine-person board, I don't believe those are paid positions. Those are just, you know, it's, it's a board that's put in place to help oversee some decisions. The, the question is, are we going to see changes at the CEO uh, level of Hockey Canada? Those are the paid positions uh, based out of Calgary. That's, again, I can't sit here and tell you with any degree of certainty. I would have told you in June or July, yeah, absolutely. It felt like... The, the climate was there for it. But here we are, it's the 6th of October, and we're still kind of having the same conversations. And we're talking about he- some more hearings uh, potentially this month. I suspect we're going to hear the same thing from other people that have worked there. So really, uh, I don't know. I, I think I'm, I speak for a lot of Canadians when I say I, I don't necessarily have the faith that they're going to follow through or we're going to see some tangible consequences here. Do you think there's a lot more scrutiny now, Ian, of the people who are appointed to these boards? Like, who are the people who run, you know, Hockey BC, Hockey Ontario, and, you know, Hockey Canada? Yeah, absolutely. I don't, you know, I don't think a lot of people stop to think about kind of how this was all set up. Even yesterday with Ontario saying, you know, we're going to withhold... Uh, you know, there's a, uh, basically a $3 per player registration fee that goes to Hockey Canada. 
I don't think people have ever stopped to think about that. And, and certainly, I think with some of the reporting that has been done, uh, you know, the, the Globe and Mail in particular uh, recently, with you know talking about uh, you know funding uh, that is funds that have been taken from uh, from Hockey Canada and and to pay it out to assault victims. I don't think anybody stopped to think about that, right? It's almost like a boilerplate thing. If yeah. you're registering your daughter or son in hockey, you just, you, you here's my you know $800 fee. You don't look at the, oh, I didn't know that $9 of it went to this or $8. Well, I think there's going to be a lot more scrutiny yeah. on sort of the nuts and bolts of, of this here moving forward. You are absolutely right about that. Ian, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Ian Mendez is a senior writer at The Athletic. You can check it out online at theathletic.com. Well worth a little subscription there. I do. I love to read it. Also, because they do great work on issues like this one, this whole Hockey Canada situation. Now, if you're if you're someone who plays hockey, if you play hockey of any kind, any level, maybe your kids do, you pay your registration fees. Some of that goes to Hockey Canada. Has any of this made you go, I don't think I want to give this organization money. Like, have you thought twice about how much money you're contributing, essentially? Or do you think, you know what? Yeah, it's going to get sorted out. Uh, Simi at cknw.com. And here's the thing that gets me about this. All of the money that Hockey Canada and these organizations have spent on these funds, lawyers, paying off victims, all of that money. But never once have I heard the board or executives talk about how much money they have spent on programs to prevent any of this from happening. They didn't say that, yeah, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago or five years ago, we really realized that we had a problem. We had to do better in in providing support, training, uh, you know, counseling for our young players to understand what is and what isn't acceptable behavior. Like, you know, have a couple of these incidences. If you're a parent, you have a couple of cases I think you're probably sitting down and talking to your kid, right? You're saying, hey, this is why are you doing this? This shouldn't be happening. You try to make sure it doesn't happen again. And yet all we've heard about with Hockey Canada is more funds, more money. They bought more insurance to cover more claims. That's all they kept doing instead of saying, we need to put an end to this problem. We need to treat every case like a zero case that we want to make sure this doesn't happen again. That is the message that I have not heard from them. And I do wonder if parents are starting to wonder, why am I giving this organization money? This is Mornings with Simi. You think you have trouble parking your vehicle? Well, think about what it's like to drive a transport truck or another type of heavy vehicle. What about at the end of the day when your workday is over? Where do you park that vehicle? Well, the drivers of those trucks and heavy vehicles are asking the provincial and municipal governments for some help. They say they need to create more overnight parking spaces. This has been a long-standing issue. Joining us now to talk about this is Dave Earle, president of the BC Trucking Association. Good morning, Dave. Good morning. So how big of a concern is this? What's going on? Yeah, I mean, like you said, this has been a long-standing issue. And I mean, while we see progress, for example, the, the province has recently invested uh, in a truck park by the Port Man Bridge where there's going to be space for about 200 units with the ability to expand to another couple hundred units. There's over 20,000 heavy commercial vehicles registered just in Surrey alone. So this is a big concern, that's for sure. Okay, where are they all parking? Some of them are parking in terminals. Some of them are parking in, in park stops. Um, the big issue, though, is for the independent small operator. Um, they can't park at home. 
you know, so they have to find a place uh, that's available for them. And of course, the further it is from home, that means they end up, if you can imagine, uh, with a significant commute to drive to get to your truck to drive all day. And then, you know, when you come back to the place where you're parking it, you park it, and then you have a significant commute to drive home. Um, It's a, a really serious continuing problem. So are some truck drivers perhaps parking their vehicle at home? Like, has this caused any kind of an issue in residential neighborhoods? Not so much in residential neighborhoods, but we do see it from time to time in commercial neighborhoods. We do see it from time to time uh, with larger lots and different zoning in different municipalities where you're uh, permitted to keep a commercial vehicle or perhaps two, depending on the size of your lot. If you're on a bigger lot, a farm, for example, uh, we do see vehicles parked on uh, not residential streets because they're very difficult to get in and out of, uh, but sometimes uh, parked on the side of, of, uh, of more, if you will, commercial streets. Um, you know, and that's just simply because there's nowhere else to go. So what do you think is the best way to deal with this? What would you like to see happen? Simi, we really have to start having a conversation about land use policy that includes all types of land use. Uh, we're really good about having conversations about the agricultural land reserve and about farms and about food security. We also have to have a conversation about employment lands. Uh, we have to have a conversation about you know when we have the limited supply of land, where do we best allocate it? How do we allocate it uh, for the long term? It's, uh, it, it's a difficult issue, but it's one we really have to get serious about having. Okay, so what do you classify as employment lands? What does that mean? That's what we talk about when we look at uh, commercial development. So as you're moving about the city, uh, it includes everything, if, if you will, from the, well, the downtown core is an obvious example. Uh, but when you see those tilt-up buildings, when you see the warehouses, when you see uh, the lighter commercial areas, manufacturing, um, those are lands that are allocated for jobs. Um, you know, and as much as a lot of people are able to work from home, uh, a lot aren't. And a lot of work has to happen uh, on these lands. And it's something that, uh, that I know Metro Vancouver and the municipalities have identified as a very serious issue um, because, quite simply, we're going to run out of them. And the, what do we do? Yeah, Dave, this seems like it goes part and parcel kind of with that issue that we've also talked about in Metro Vancouver, and that is the squeeze on industrial space just in general. Absolutely, Simi. That, that's exactly what this conversation is about. And we need to do better with what we have. And we really, really need to start thinking about what do we do for the next 10, 20, 30 years um, as our land crunch becomes even more acute. Okay, so are we planning for that? We talk a lot about planning for housing, but are we planning for industrial space? We are planning for industrial space, but we're not exactly planning for truck space and truck usage. Um, You know, when we look at commercial hubs and we talk about uh, zero emission future of our industry and trying to do things differently and getting goods closer to where people are, um, I don't know that there's a a plot of commercial land anywhere in the city of Vancouver that's large enough for a commercial hub for vehicles to come in and then distribute from there. Uh, That's why you see distribution hubs in the suburbs. Um, that's fine, but it just means it's it's more vehicles moving longer distances to get the goods that you and I need uh, to where we want them. Right. So as you point out, though, it still has to be within reason, right? Because again, if you think about putting it farther out, aren't we just clogging up the roads with more trucks then when they do have to hit the road? You absolutely are, Simi. And one of the things that we know, and it's the same thing when we talk about moving people and moving goods, the more we can put in one vehicle, the more efficient it is. So as we get to that last mile, as we get closer to where people want those goods and we have to break those loads out, uh, it creates congestion. 
So the closer we can get to where we break those loads out for people where they live, the better. Uh, But it's going to be an incredible challenge in the Lower Mainland in particular. So is there a plan for this? Like, have you spoken to like municipal councils about this? Oh, yes, absolutely. We've spoken to municipal councils. We've spoken to Metro Vancouver. um, But what we're trying to do now is to to bring these other uses. When we talk about truck parking, when we talk about overnight parking, um, you know, we're going to move to a point where we electrify the fleet and move into a hydrogen future. Where do we park them to charge them? Um, you know, these are questions that we really start to have to, you know, examine closely. And I'm happy to say everybody's very engaged that we talk to, but it's a very, very difficult conversation to come up with solutions. Yeah, and I would imagine that most people are thinking, well, just not in my neighborhood. Do you get that NIMBYism happening too? Absolutely. Absolutely, Sammy. So how do you overcome that? Part of it's education. Part of it is uh, looking at the the future. I mean, when we talk about the future and we look at at zero emission vehicles, they're in the the main, they're silent. So, you know, when we look at them and say, well, this is going to be a long-term place, and I say not in my backyard, there's there's valid reasons for a lot of people for that, Um, one of them being noise. That's going to go away over the next few years. So, I mean, we're looking at a real seismic change in the industry to say we need to do things differently, um, you know, and we need to involve the entire community to have that broader conversation about how do we continue to live uh, in a livable region. Okay, so interesting. Dave, thank you. Anytime. Thanks for having me. That's Dave Earle, president of the BC Trucking Association, calling on municipal and the provincial government to help them out. They say there's so many independent operators with trucks and those trucks need to be parked somewhere at the end of their workday. And they say there are simply not enough spaces to make that happen. Listen, you don't want to see this. You don't want to see a truck parked in your neighborhood. If that's the case, then we need to find an industrial space for those trucks to park. This is Mornings with Simi. We have to brace ourselves for another wave of COVID when cold and flu season really kicks in shortly. But what's something that, you know, a lot of people also need to really pay attention to is how the common symptoms of COVID-19 are changing. And that is something that health experts all over the world are trying to point out to people right now. Joining us now for more on that is Dr. Berinder Narang, family physician and our CKNW Global News medical contributor. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Sydney. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Are you hearing this from your patients as well? They think one thing about COVID, but COVID in reality has really become something else. Yeah, and we've noticed that trend uh, happening all through the Omicron wave where the symptoms have been changing from the original COVID um, um, you know, uh, lineage that we saw um, two years ago. You know, the cardinal symptoms um, that first started, there was the loss of smell, shortness of breath and fever. And those aren't even in the top five symptoms um, that are being reported out of the UK. And I think that's what's been getting a lot of attention these last few days. Um, So Zoe, which is this um, group out of the UK led by Professor Tim Spector, kind of crowdsources symptoms. So they have this really cool app that people, like when they've gotten COVID, um, they can report their symptoms that they've um, caught in real time. And so they've been collecting this data for a couple of years. And the top five symptoms they're reporting now are runny nose, headache, sneezing, sore throat, and persistent cough. And those top five symptoms are whether you're vaccinated, uh, sorry, if you've had two vaccines. Now, there's a bit of a difference if they say you've had only one dose or no vaccine. So if you had no vaccines, they think fever is still one of the top five symptoms. 
Okay. So let's run through these for sure. Because I know a lot of people, Dr. Narang, who, mm. you know, they may, have had a, they may have had a cold, they may have had COVID, but if you ask them, they're like, no, 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 it's a cold. But it sounds to me like a lot of these symptoms you just described, they, it could be a cold or it could be COVID. Absolutely. And it's completely indistinguishable um, from the common cold, um, uh, COVID-19, or even um, some cases of influenza may present like this. But influenza typically does have more of the high fever and muscle aches associated too. But I, let's say you're just starting to feel unwell and you have a headache and a runny nose and you're like, well, I don't know what this is. <laughs> right. That very well could be the play. Uh, that very well could be how it is over the next few months. Okay. So then what is the warning to people here? Is it like, like I think a lot of people just, they take it for granted that it is a cold. Do we need to be more careful? Um, that that comes down to personal uh, kind of how you, your risk tolerance is. But I think everyone should be prudent going into the next few years because what we've learned from places like Australia is with um, how quickly Omicron has been kind of going through population, you know, in, in BC, um, we estimate at least 75% of people have had COVID through um, the previous variants and through um, Omicron. And we have a highly vaccinated community. But so we, we, we think, yeah, that should keep people out of hospital and that between the vaccines and previous infections. But um, we're even seeing, even as last of last week, there's a, a discussion of this BQ 1.1 variant. It's a subvariant of Omicron now, which has been found in Canada. It's been found in the UK. So they're starting to see a bit of uptick in hospitals. Now, is that from this variant or is that just from, you know, um, seasonal things? One of the things we learned from Australia was they had their worst flu season in the last five years and so um and they said they saw over there that it came earlier um because you know their winter would have been in our summer so we get a little bit of information right. from them their their flu season came earlier and it hit harder and so that's why um you heard from the province last week that you know bc is going to have 1.8 million doses of the influenza vaccine um including uh, a higher dose one for seniors, uh, uh, almost 700,000 doses of that. So, you know, we're going to sound like broken records here, but really yeah. the best way to protect yourself from winter is getting getting a flu shot and getting the COVID vaccine because we are all likely going to get some type of respiratory virus this winter. But And at the beginning, we won't know what it is. So do we isolate right away if it's significant symptoms? Yes, that makes sense. Masking makes sense. And I know even though the recommendations... Um, or you know everyone's got freedom to travel without masks now it's you know you have to you have to think is that is that a good idea for yourself or not you're right it's just i think we always all need to no matter what it is cold just remember people don't necessarily want to be around you if you're sick even if it is just a cold (laughs) yep and even like there's all the other five times more rhinovirus too which is another common cold virus is happening and so there's a lot and there's going to be a lot of transmission a lot of people getting sick and a lot of confusion and so we need to think about ourselves and those our loved ones and those who are around us in public because um, all of those things cumulatively can have an impact on um, our hospitals and our own personal health that's very true thank you so much for that this morning no worries. Take care. That is Dr. Brenda Narang, family physician and CKNW Global News medical contributor, talking about the changing symptoms now of COVID. And I think, you know what? I've just adopted that idea that even if I think it's allergies, even if I think it's a minor cold, just stay away from people if I'm not feeling well, because they will appreciate it. And I will appreciate that too, if that were me in that position, right? This is Mornings with Simi. 
I'm sure you have felt it maybe in your eyes or the back of your throat or a little scratchiness in your chest. No, you're probably not getting a cold or you might be or it might also be the air quality out there because the Metro Vancouver Regional District has issued an air quality advisory for the eastern Fraser Valley and that is because of those high concentrations of fine particulate matter. This is smoke from ongoing wildfires out there and here we are, we're in October and we are still talking about this problem. So what is going on? Joining us now to talk more about that is Philippe Alain Bergeron, the Environment and Climate Change Canada meteorologist. Thank you so much for being with us. Sure. Good morning. So what is happening here? Is it is this normal for this time of year to have this problem in Metro Vancouver? It's not that typical to, have, to experience such conditions this late in the season. Uh, but if you look uh, back at the um, what we've had, the, the kinds of uh, weather conditions we've had in the past uh, few months, it's been exceptionally warm and dry, uh, and that contributes, of course, to uh, to prolonging the, uh, the the wildfire season. So, where is this problem coming from? So we have multiple uh, sources. There's multiple fires that are still uh, active uh, in uh, Minicada, uh, for example, near Chilliwack Lake and uh, near Hope. Uh, and actually, there are other fires as well in activity um, across Washington State, the Idaho Panhandle, and uh, also in the north. So it's really everywhere. Um, we, we've had um, a spike also in air quality at uh, Cranbrook just a few hours ago. And even the, the Peace Region in the north are impacted by um, the Battleship Mountain Fire, as well as fires in the um, Northwest Territories. So they've got these fires ongoing then. So which areas are, are most impacted by this? Well, as you mentioned, of course, we have the uh, the air quality uh, advisory that's been issued by Metro Vancouver, and that's for mostly, I guess, Chilliwack and, and Hope. Uh, there's also our other partners are, the, of course, the, the province of British Columbia, and they issued the, um, the air quality advisory as well for regions just to the east, where we also have... Um, have very active fires producing lots of smoke. So for the Similkameen, the Nicola, and the uh, Fraser Canyon. Okay, and how long can we expect this to go on for? So this pattern, we've we've seen this blocking uh, pattern with uh, with not much movement in terms of the weather system. Uh, so the persistent ridge of high pressure has been dominant now for for, for weeks, and uh, we do have uh, some good news. So we just have to be patient for a few more days. Uh, it looks like it's, it's very similar conditions through uh, Sunday. Uh, but there's a hint uh, of, uh, well, more than a hint, actually. We're, we're starting to get a little bit more confident, uh, finally, that we get a pattern change. Uh, late uh, Sunday night into Monday, uh, the exact timing, of course, can be refined in sort of plus or minus 12 or 24 hours. But sometime during the, by, by Monday, we would expect to have uh, increase in clouds. Uh, there's a good chance of showers. Uh, of course, uh, this is from, uh, moving from north to south along the coast. Uh, so the, the north coast has been rainy, that, that's no problem. But in this case, we just get the tail end of this front making it all the way to the, uh, to the south coast, the lower mainland. Um, however, it won't be very, um, in terms of moisture, by the time it gets here, we're not getting a lot of rain at all, maybe just a few showers. Uh, but you will see some, uh, some winds, probably the northwesterly winds coming down uh, the Strait of Georgia. And that will at least help with you know, mixing out uh, the smoke and bringing us some, uh, some cleaner air and also uh, dropping the temperatures uh, closer to the, uh, the seasonal uh, normals. Okay, well, that's good news about getting some kind of change, especially with the wind coming in. But do you see that pattern shift of more typical fall weather coming our way? 
Well, it's still, if I'm looking beyond that, uh, of course, into uh, next week, uh, it looks like the ridge is, uh, this infamous ridge is rebuilding, but it is not uh, as strong. So it's still not quite typical in terms of the the fall weather, in terms of having uh, these very dry conditions. I mean, so right now we're looking at, uh, uh, through next week, if I look out to day 10, uh, it's the ridge again, but not as strong. So the temperatures would be mild, but they were so a little bit above normal, but not exceptionally warm as as we've had. Uh, however, it would still be dry for a few more days. Okay, well, still dry. It sounds like we could use more moisture. So even the moisture that's coming on Monday then is not going to be like substantial or anything like that. You said just a few showers. Yeah, so it's not so much yeah the moisture, but the fact that we get all this circulation with the uh, uh, with the wind and and, uh, and of course the cooler temperatures. Uh, there will be, however, some the potential for significant precipitation. Of course, the north coast they don't really uh, particularly need it. Right. Uh, but I'm looking at the Peace region where you still have the fires in activity, so that might be uh, more significant uh, up up there in terms of the uh, the rain. Uh, but uh, yeah, so so here it would remain fairly dry, maybe uh, a millimeter or so on on Monday. So it's it's not not that significant in terms of the moisture. Honestly, I can't believe that we're talking about Thanksgiving weekend and wildfire smoke and still not a substantial amount of rain. It seems very unusual to me. Yeah, typically we would uh, be moving into uh, there's, there's a transition sometime in uh, right. September or October, and then you really get into the, uh, the rainy season possibly by late October, and of course November through January, February, March. Uh, but this year it's been uh, definitely it's exceptionally delayed. It sure does. Okay, thank you so much for your time. Hi, you're welcome. Appreciate that. I really explained it so well. That is Philippe Alain Bergeron, an Environment and Climate Change Canada meteorologist. So you heard it, the haziness, that air quality advisory that we have there, and you probably feel that, right? Like I know I feel it, a little bit of a scratchiness there, and you can, I, I have asthma, so I can definitely feel it in my chest too, and I'm sure many people do. Well, that's staying with us for at least a couple of days here. And as we just heard, it looks like or sounds like it will start to clear out on Sunday where we get some slightly windier conditions coming in and some precipitation, not much, but clouds and some showers on Monday before it returns to sunny but cooler temperatures. I know, I'm like you. I keep wondering, where is fall? Where is fall? When is it coming? And you know what? Some areas could really use that rain because that's why we still have this wildfire smoke out there too. This is Mornings with Simi. You can do all sorts of things to prepare to travel if you're heading to the airport, right? You can make sure you pack properly, go over your carry-on baggage, make sure everything is good. But then you get to the airport and you look at that security lineup and you think, I did not budget for how long this was going to be. It has been so frustrating for months now. We've seen and heard about these very long lineups when it comes to trying to get through those security checkpoints. But get this. You might be able to avoid all of that now. There's a new way to maybe skip that lineup at YVR. We're going to find out all about it. Joining us now is Mike McEnany, who's the VP and Chief External Affairs Officer at YVR. Mike, thanks for being back with us. Thank you for having me. First of all, sign me up. Second, (laughs) tell me about this. What is this? Well, I will certainly get on the first uh, first uh, element as soon as we finish the interview. Yes. So this is a program that we are rolling out uh, as of about two or three days ago, and its initial focus is on travel to the U.S. So what we are doing is we are enabling passengers who are going to the United States to reserve a spot at the security checkpoint ahead of their flight. And you can book up to 72 hours in advance of the scheduled departure time, or you, you can do it at the airport up to 90 minutes 
before the flight. It is free to use. Uh, it is, again, at this point, focused on U.S. flights uh, running between 6.30 a.m. and 8.30 p.m. But after we get through with it, this trial process, we will then be rolling this out uh, to domestic and international as well. Okay, so how is this going to work then? You book an appointment, like what is the window? So you would go to yvr.ca backslash express as a drop down menu you would pick the flight that you're on you would pick the number of passengers that are traveling with you it will give you a time block to then choose from you would click on that time block you would provide your email uh, address and you will get a qr code emailed to you when you arrive at the airport you would show that qr code to a airport staff they would scan it and then you would be sent into the expedited uh, line that would take you through to uh, passenger screening okay and so have you done some work then to determine the optimal kind of time the breaks to have between people to make sure that line keeps moving so that you don't just have another lineup no, absolutely. So how it, how it, it, is, it is operating at this point, and it is a bit of a, a trial process here for travel to the U.S. So what we will do is we will look at the historical passenger numbers at any given point in time on any given day, because, of course, demand fluctuates up and down peaks and valleys of the flights. And then you will meter out the available time slots that people can select. And it's, it's to do exactly what you were just getting at there to try and make sure that overall we're making this a, a, a simple enough process that does not simply result in more chunking up as people go through the line. And then after we get a good calibration on it, then uh, we roll it out to, uh, to uh, domestic and international. And it is based on technology that is being used in Europe and being used in the United States and has been being used in both those jurisdictions now for uh, several years. Okay, this sounds to me like the fast pass at Disneyland, right? That you're creating a way for people to kind of go around that. What about staffing issues? We know that that was an issue at airports all summer. Is this up and running? You've got enough people? So the staffing piece is hopefully we're going to help CATSA uh, with that and with the processing piece as we try to meter out when passengers will arrive to go through. So ultimately with the objective here is really twofold. So you have one in terms of making the passenger experience and the travel experience for the, the passenger uh, as effective as possible and de-stress that, that timing piece. And yes. as you said, it's your intro when you arrive and you see those long lines. We all, we all know the stress level that, that creates. But the other, capacity, the other piece to it too is also trying to create greater predictability uh, for CATSA as they proceed through the, the PBS uh, screening process and their own staffing, uh, own staffing issues and, and uh, scheduling of breaks, etc. So uh, it should be a, a win-win on, on both counts. Okay, so I see what you're saying. So this also would kind of even that out too, right? If you're reducing some of the longer lineups on the regular security side, that is beneficial. Exactly. Now, ultimately, we are dealing with a system in which, of course, people show up when they show up. We're going to try and institute a piece here where you can actually book and, and give yourself some consistency on it. It is still an overall environment where it is a first-come, first-serve if people show up in the, in the general lane. But what we're hoping, based on experience that the organizations we have partnered with, what we're hoping, based on their experience in Europe and the United States, is that we can bring that level of, of consistency uh, and a bit more calmness um, I'm not quite sure. I, I view the airport as quite on the Walt Disney scale in terms of... Uh, <laughs> oh, those lineups of, certainly were this yeah. summer, right? Oh, on the lineups, but yeah, I meant in terms of uh, the joy and happiness you get when you go <laughs> through Disney uh, versus simply uh, traversing through an airport to get on a flight. But uh, hopefully we are able to take uh, a great deal of that stress out of, uh, out of the line process. Okay, so you mentioned this has been done elsewhere. Is it being done in Canada? Uh, we are the first 
just uh, here in Canada. Actually, I believe there has been one trial uh, at another airport, uh, but we are we are proceeding with uh, the U.S. here as our initial launch. And then, as I said, we will do uh, domestic and uh, international as well. Okay, so how easy is this to sign up for? Like, do people need to do anything in advance or do you wait until that up to 72 hours before your flight? Uh, it is very easy to sign up for. Uh, if you go to uh, the website, uh, you will see it's uh, it's a matter of minutes, uh, and it is free. Uh, and what you are providing is your email address so that uh, you can receive the QR code uh, and the time that you have selected, and it will show the number of uh, passengers that you are showing up with uh, to go through at that point. It is a very simple process, and we have actually been going through the line uh, over the past several days, uh, uh, airport staff going through the line to show it to people who are, are in the screening line, uh, and, and the sign-up has been quite uh, robust and immediate, and it, it takes minutes to do. Okay, so I guess that's the key then as well, isn't it, Mike, to get the word out on this so people know about it? Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this interview. (laughs) Right. Okay. So we're going to try to help out with that because in the end, this benefits everybody if we can reduce those lineups a little bit. So once again, who is eligible for this? When is it open? Who can use this? So it's uh, anyone traveling to the United States. Uh, through YVR, uh, and it is for flights anytime between 6.30 in the morning and uh, 8.30 p.m. Uh, It is a very simple process. We will roll it out uh, to uh, flights uh, to Canada and elsewhere uh, later on. Uh, It takes minutes to do, and uh, we are certainly hoping that uh, people will will utilize it. You can go to our website, uh, yvr.ca backslash express and uh, and click on all right well i'm going to definitely test this out mike and, and i'm sure it's going to go great i love the idea thank you so much for joining us this morning thank you for having me